Well, I hope you're doing well, coming from a, a good week. I wanted to just, on behalf of our pastors and directors here, this last month, the month of October, we had the pastor and director, whatever, uh, appreciation month. You guys were so kind to us in a lot of different ways with little gifts behind the scenes, and just wanted to say thanks on behalf of uh, us as a staff. It was fun to uh, just really feel exactly what that song, uh, singing, really feeling uh, loved. I think one of the ones that kind of stuck in my mind was uh, somebody that really spoke to my heart was two chocolate chip cookies that were connected with caramel in the middle. Like, who thought of that? Like, uh, ingenious. And so thank you again uh, so much. Oh, we've, uh, now it's, it's hard to believe we're already 10 weeks in. This is uh, week number 10 into the book of Mark. And so you can guess what chapter would we be in this week? Nice, nice. Good problem solving there. I wanted to, just before uh, we d- dive into the text, you can start turning to the chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 35 through 45 uh, here this morning, but wanted to do a little uh, quick recap of some of what we've experienced thus far. If you haven't been around or if you have been around and you're as forgetful as I am, uh, the, the, the thing that we're looking, we've been looking at is under this theme or this umbrella of eyewitness, and the hope is that we just by looking into the account of Jesus' life, we go from, yeah, I know about him, to being like a legit, I'm a witness of his life. I'm a witness of the amazing things that he's done. I know him personally better by digging into this account in Mark. So first week in Mark 1, we talked about the curtain being drawn. Finally, up until this point, they'd only known a name. They were finally had a chance to be exposed to him face to face. So the curtain was drawn. Mark 2, it was encouraging for us, or at least me specifically, to find out that Jesus didn't show up on the scene just to hang out with the elite and privilege, but was literally a friend of sinners. Good news. Mark 3, We see the invitation that was extended for us to put the spotlight back on him. It's so easily redirected to me and and my my desires, my wants, but that was an emphasis on getting appropriately the spotlight directed on him. Mark 4, we were pushed to make a decision as to whether or not we're a fan or a follower. You see, fans are, you've heard of fan, uh, Fairweather fans, they come and go, but a, a true follower is committed to following. Uh, so that was that week, and then chapter 5 in Mark, it was the, the reveal of uh, just another story after story of God's power through Jesus Christ over the physical world, over the spiritual world. If you remember that one was when he cast the demons out, and it was one of those moments that what just happened. And I'm pretty sure that was pretty consistent in the life of anybody that was following Jesus. It went from moment to moment. What in the world just happened here? Mark 6, John Irwin taught us on what it looks like to get out of our boats and take risks in our walk with Christ. Mark 7 confronts our bent at having clean hands but hard hearts. That's the easy thing for us to solve, to to adjust behavior, to be in line with what we think is being a a good Christian. But what does it look like to have a a soft heart and give over full reign and control to him? Mark 8, we learned that we can't do this halfway, that we have to be fully in if we're going to follow him. Then last week, it was encouraging, the, if you remember the statement of the, of the, the father that said, I believe, help 
my unbelief, this idea that God meets us, even just with a mustard, size, mustard seed size bit of faith, that God's willing to, to meet us in that place, that we don't have to have it all figured up and solved to show up at his door. Mark 10 now, we're, we're turning a corner, we're looking a little bit more, we've been maybe surprised by what Jesus was like. I think I've joked about it before that maybe some of our younger childhood flannel graph pictures of Jesus that were limited, not incorrect, but limited perspective of the scope of who Jesus was. Maybe our horizons have been stretched a bit in the, the vastness of his character, the greatness, his, his commitment to serving the needs of other. And now we're starting to realize here in our text today that not just was he different than what we expected. This morning we're going to see that the kingdom that he invited us to be a part of, that he called us to, was also a bit upside down compared to the world that we're, we're surrounded with. We're going to see this as a, a di directly an account of uh, an interaction that Jesus had with a couple of his disciples. But before we dive into that, I just want to pray over our morning that God would lead and direct our time. Dear Lord, thank you for this chance thus far to be looking just at account after account of the miraculous things you did with your limited time here on earth, how you are so committed to, to meeting needs and serving others. As we're going to see even this morning that you showed up not to be served, but to serve us. What a staggering truth and reality that is about who you are in your character. I pray that you'd speak to us through this text, that we'd have a, a clearer picture, that we'd walk away even at the end of this series as legit, eyewitnesses to who you are. We recognize we're dependent on you even now as we dive into your word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oh, well, just thinking about our, our topic this morning, I was thinking about this. What's up with our desire to be the greatest? What's up with our obsession, our desire, and our culture? It's always this push and this pull to what? To be the greatest, to see ourselves elevated amongst others, amongst our peers, whether it's in, in sports, in work, or whatever it is. There's what's up with our obsession to be the greatest? Somebody recommended to me, and I watched this documentary on TV on Netflix called Bigger, Stronger, faster. And I was thinking about that, like, isn't that really the, the culture that we're in? It's always this push to be bigger, stronger, faster. It was an account of, of really that exact reality in our culture with the, really the uh, nation's obsession with outperforming others. And that's led to the excessive, it really went down this road, of the excessive steroid use in sports and where that's turned our country. And some, it's a pretty interesting uh, documentary. But what, what I thought was really fascinating, they had this interview with this male model, model which in and of itself is kind of weird to me, uh, but this male model that was working for HydroxyCut. Have you heard of this before? The, uh, the fitness thing that really helps you get the, the abs you never knew were under those layers. Uh, and and I, I remember seeing the picture of this guy and he's just shredded. You're like, what is this guy? And there's, there, the, interviewee, the interviewer was asking, was just like, is this all from HydroxyCut? Like, what is this madness? It was like the behind the scenes. He's like, oh yeah, I take HydroxyCut, but I, I started doing steroids when I was 13. And I was like, well, there you go. <laughs> that, that makes sense. That's a, that's, a, that's a reason why I have a keg and not a six pack. And uh, the, what is driving this obsession? If you really break it down, and I'm not, I'm not trying to rip on those with, with nice abs, but the point uh, that, that, that I'm pointing towards 
is that the reason I'm getting at this is really a lot of times, if we're honest with ourselves, there's something that's at the root of a lot of this push and tug and pull and climbing at whatever the cost, and it starts with the letter P. What word is it? Pride, right? That's, that's the truth of it, if we're honest with ourselves, is, is, is pride is at the root of a, a lot of this. And that's what, what, what we're going to see in the text this morning, that pride, it started all the way back in the garden. What was the appeal that Satan made to Adam and Eve? That you'll be like God. You'll be like God. And ever since then, we have a planet full of, we've talked about this, self-gods. One trying to out-self-God another and trying to rise and climb. And so because of that, it's influenced every single generation. The generation that Jesus was a part of was no different than us here today. Because in that account, we see here in our text, we're about to see that these Zebedee brothers, which is fun to say, James and John, they were making their strategic move to claim the top seats in the coming kingdom. They're making their strategic move. We're going to see in this interaction. But what they're going to discover is that the kingdom that they're trying to rise in had a little bit, uh, a different set of rules, if you will. It was a bit upside down. Let's take a look in the text in verse 35 of Mark 10 at the big ask. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, listen to this, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> All right. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and the other one at your left hand in your glory. In your glory. Wow. Let's pause there. A pretty big ask if you think about it, right? Uh, can we be seated in the highest places of honor? This wasn't a new conversation. In the previous chapter in Mark 9.33, Jesus caught the disciples debating about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This was like an on, ongoing childish debate, kind of as if who's going to be first in line, right? So this debate, this wasn't a new one that they're bringing before him. But if you think about it, it shouldn't surprise us because of what we already talked about. And also, these guys were all pretty common men, so the idea of being elevated was pretty attractive to them. But if you think about it, it doesn't take too many guys being together in the same room with testosterone going that the competitiveness starts to flow, right? Like how, how often have you been around a group of guys? And it, I mean, turn on a, a football game this afternoon, the, the competitive drive for rising up, like it's definitely a part of who we are. So, some years back, I was at a church golf outing, you know, it's just pastors and staff and different people at this big outing and I was cut kind of, you get placed in these foursomes and it's I, I'm fine with golf that that doesn't bring out my competitive nature because I've just concluded I'm terrible you know what I mean like there's no fight there's no pull I'm just bad but uh but in this golf game I got paired up with the director of counseling at the church and I was like well let's see how he interacts with this sport it was fascinating uh discovery he didn't handle it very well. In fact, like through, through the golf game, like he'd miss a shot and be kicking dirt and mumbling things under, under his breath. And then it came to a pinnacle. And at one of the holes, he missed a shot. It was the one, I, I find the lake shots, the ones with the water. I'm like, cool, let's see how well I can skip my, uh, my ball. But, <laughs> but some people actually try to get over the water. And, uh, and, and, so, and so he had attempted that and failed. And you know what happened with his club? 
flying. I'm like, what happened there? Like, what? Where did that come from? Landed in a lake. And I was like, that, that's our director of counseling. To me, it gave a little bit of uh, hope, actually. The, 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 the point, the, the reason that I bring that up is because at the root of a lot of this, if we're honest with ourselves, it, it's, it's pride stuff. We don't want to say it. We don't want to admit it. We don't want to acknowledge it. But we like the idea of elevating ourselves. And so this, in, this, in this juncture, we have these two brothers that are trying to do exactly that. But they didn't necessarily think through how God typically responds to pride. Scripture is just filled with, just packed with verse after verse about the fact that what? God hates pride hates pride. I did a study on it this week. I could, I could bring you 20 to 30 verses pretty simply, but the idea, the running theme throughout Scripture is that he hates pride. And not only does he hate pride, James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but, but gives grace to the humble. The idea that he actually opposes it. And so if you're wondering, like, why do I, I feel like I'm being opposed? Why do I keep running into walls? Maybe that's something to start by wrestling through. But he gives grace to the humble, and that, to me, gives some hope. We saw that last week with the father's request. Do you remember? When he came and his son's there and his son's demon-possessed, he's like, he's like, please, help me. And what does he say? He says, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. Like he admitted in his humility that he didn't have it all solved, but he was crying out. And that was, that was a, a fertile soil. That was ground that God could work through. Think about the Old Testament, all the different characters, the different uh, heroes of our faith, if you will, how many people he used. I was trying to think through, is there even one example that didn't show serious signs of humility? So is there, maybe that's a lunch conversation for you guys. Try to think of a hero of the faith that didn't, at first I was thinking, well, maybe Samson, but look, his greatest moment at the end when he finally called out to God and, and pleaded for his mercy and did something amazing through him. The, the, the humility is part of, the, uh, of the, the process. It's part of that. God chooses to, hu to elevate humble people. Some of you are sitting here this morning saying, perfect, I'm the most humble person I know. You're like, wait, wait a second. Maybe, maybe we're missing something there. Maybe, maybe we're, we're missing the big idea. The disciples missed it too. They, they probably, the, their, their ears weren't necessarily working right. They needed closed captioning on the screen. They, they, they weren't hearing what was being said. Or at least they had selective hearing, right? When they heard Jesus talk about the upcoming suffering, they're just like, nah. I'm not really down with that idea, but whenever they, he talked about, uh, about blessing and about honor, all of a sudden their ears perked up, right? We're quick to, to respond to that, but we're a little bit hesitant to hear about anything having to do with suffering or difficulty. It's interesting to look at their approach. I wouldn't say they're exactly smooth how they approach Jesus with this request. Vote by uh, opinion here. And anybody think that was a, listen to what they said. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, that, that's really well through, thought through strategy for a request, right? Sounds a lot like what kids do with us. But, 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 but if, you're, if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, how often is that my same approach to God? I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. We make a lot of big asks with that same umbrella statement. 
I picture Jesus in his response, probably chuckling a little bit in the back of his, his mouth. What do you want me to do for you? Like asking him, just like, really? Is that the, that's your, that's your, that's your best intro? That's what you're going to come with? That's what you're bringing to the, to the table? What do you actually want me to do for you? If we're honest, it was a pretty ugly moment. You see, the reality is with some of our selfish ambition and things that we do to try to move up top, how do you move up top? It typically, if not always, comes from pushing someone else down. And so they weren't really giving a lot of consideration to the what? The other ten disciples, right? Like the, his other followers. They're like, ah, don't worry about them. I'm right, you're left, this is going to be awesome. You see, the, the, the truth is, when we're trying to rise up, we're not necessarily too concerned about who we're pushing down. My question for us as it relates to this, what big ask do we have of God to gratify our own desires? What big ask are we making of him? Uh, is it success of our business? Is it, is it things that are personal? Is it, is it winning this lawsuit? Is it, is it what, whatever? Is it, is it helping me achieve this goal? Like what are some of the things that if we're honest with ourselves, it's really just about me and my preferences. What are those, what's our big ask that we're bringing to the table? Thankfully, Jesus was extremely patient with them and with us, right? Thankfully. Look at his response. He clarifies some expectations in verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Look at this interaction. I thought it was interesting that Jesus doesn't deny the fact that he's going to be seated on a throne. He doesn't push back on that or that his kingdom's soon coming. Amen to that. Good news. But he does respond. He says to him, you have no idea what you're asking me. You have no idea. He's like, listen, remember, they have selective hearing. You, you apparently missed the part about suffering prior to reward. When he says, when he uses the expression, drink the cup, that expression was using for saying that you're willing to share someone's fate. Share someone's fate. So he's saying to them, in other words, are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? Are you ready to die for me? Are you ready to die like me? Some years back, I've talked about this before, I had the opportunity to lead a team. We were in Dearborn, Michigan, which had the, has the highest uh, Muslim population of anywhere in the United States. It's, some would say it's the second most to the, the, the Middle East. And so we were there with a ministry that was reaching out uh, to Muslim uh, folks in that community, trying to introduce them to the grace and love through Jesus Christ. And the, one of the women directors that I was talking to said that she's like, you know what the tough thing is? is this isn't just like a, a nice, like, yes, I'm going to follow. This is, this is a decision that has the potential of some serious ramifications, especially within the, the ladies within that culture. She's like, you don't realize what we're asking them, asking them to do. Are you willing to die for this decision? That's what, that's what Jesus was asking them. It's a similar that many in our planet here today are still asked. More than that, we're not more than ready to die, probably taking it a step for, further in Jesus' mind, more than that, absorbing the cup of God's wrath on all human sin? 
Are you ready to walk that walk, be baptized in that? I don't think so. But look at their, their response. James, James and, uh, and John believe they are ready to follow his lead. Maybe it's the reasons they were called sons of thunder in Mark 3.17. Jesus predicts, though, that the, the, the what's to come. I don't know if that was the moment that their eternity or their, the rest of their life got redirected. I was kind of wondering that in this reading this text because he's predicting, he's saying, listen, you are going to actually suffer. You are going to experience this. And I don't know if it was because of their request or not. But Acts, in Acts 12, we see that James was the first martyr having his head cut off. John ends up being the last martyr, dying in a prison on the island of Patmos. Both of them ended up experiencing some pretty significant suffering on behalf of Jesus Christ. However, as far as the request goes for being at the right hand, being at the left hand, Jesus defers to God's predetermined plan. He's saying, listen, this has already been decided. Remember, Jesus surrenders the whole matter of rewards and glory to God the Father. Philippians 2.16 refers to Jesus, says this. It's on the screen there. Who, though, referring to Jesus, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, I love that, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he doesn't answer their question. He doesn't say who will be in those seats, but pretty confident in God's kingdom, in this upside-down kingdom, that they aren't given because they're asked for. Anybody agree with that? Probably not given because they're asked for. So he is there trying to clarify expectations. And he goes even further to clarify expectations in this next section. Take a look at verse 41, pointing out that it's not about self-denial. It's about self-denial, not self-promotion. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were ticked off. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among, among you must be a slave of all. Let's unpack that a little bit. A lot that he's saying there. First, you notice that the other disciples are what? They're indignant, they're mad, they're ticked off. Not because of the, necessarily the topic of the discussion, but more so because they had similar ambitions and they got beat to the punch. They got, they got beat to being able to ask him, so they're ticked off. Jesus, in his patience and kindness, takes time and decides, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you on this. I'm gonna teach you a critical lesson that it's about self-denial, not self-promotion. Look at how he starts. He points to things that they're familiar with. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, you're very familiar with Roman rule. You know what it's like to be under the strong arm of the law, under the government. I was, I was thinking about that this week. I was, I was listening to a, 
a message on that topic, and they're pointing out that in that culture, that a that a, a, a somebody in the Roman military could come alongside. They're carrying a, a heavy weight or carrying their their heavy materials. They could tap a common person on the shoulder and ask them to carry their equipment for one mile. And by law, that person had to carry it. Can you imagine being under that kind of rule where somebody could just come tap your shoulder and whatever they're carrying, whatever luggage, they're like, it's your turn, tap, you're it. You'd be seeing soldiers coming and like hiding behind corners. But imagine that. That's why, that's why when Jesus is introducing this upside down kingdom in Matthew 5, 41, he tells them, somebody asks you to go one mile, go two miles. We do things a little bit differently here. Have you ever had a boss like that that holds a, a strong arm over you or been in a work environment? I was just talking with a guy in our life group this week that was describing his work environment, how it's a, a fear-based system and, and everybody's afraid to, to speak up. And, and when the boss man, the high guy, the guy that was holding it over them, speaks, everybody kind of cowers and is, af is afraid. And you're like, wait a second, that might work in this kingdom, but that's not how it is in the upside-down kingdom that Jesus was introducing. What does he say to him? He says, it shall not be so among you. We're going to do things differently here. Welcome to the upside down kingdom with different sets of rules. Remember, in John 18, 36, Jesus told Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's different, completely different. So what is it? What does this new kingdom look like? What's the opposite? What's the opposite? He's saying, listen, if you're going to excel in this kingdom, you must be a servant. The word servant used there is the same word used for a table waiter. I don't know if you, any of you have had a job as, as waitering or serving. Uh, really, the whole task, your whole entire job is to, to meet needs, to, to bring things as people need them. Oh, you need a ketchup refill? You need a napkin? Oh, a drink refill? Number 47 for you, kid? Like, okay, let me go get it for you. Like, this, like it's, a, it's a, difficult, a difficult task, but the truth is, that's what we're called to do. It's been an interesting process doing this refresh project. Lots of interactions with the teams that have been out here. And I was talking uh, just this week to a gentleman who's a, a believer that's doing the did some of the painting outside. He's been super generous to us. He was he was uh, I had him as we we're doing the outside. I said, "Hey, can you quote me on these two rooms down here that need to be repainted?" And he's like, "Why don't I just throw those in for you?" And I was like, "Yes, you're speaking my love language." But we got a, we got got talk we got talking further, and he was saying he's like, "You know what? I've had my business. I've had it 20 plus years." But the more I have it, the more I realize, like, yeah, I can, I can go buy this. I can go on this trip. I can acquire this, he says. But the longer I, I, I'm in this, the more I, I realize I just enjoy serving people and seeing their responses to that. I was like, huh, lesson from the painter. You know, like, a, like serious, seriously. And when we see this text like this, we're just like, oh, there he is. There's God calling us to be a servant, serving other people. What if... Our maker and our creator, our designer, knows what's going to bring us the most joy and the most satisfaction in this lifetime. What if he's saying, your kingdom's twisted. Turn it this way. That's how you're going to enjoy it. 
You turn it upside down, you'll enjoy it better. Serving others, putting that as a, as a mentality before us as a church. I'm excited going into 2015 because I've kind of seen this year as kind of getting the, the house ready, like before you, you're having guests over. And next year is like, all right, what's it going to look like for us to get busy meeting some of the needs in our community? What radical things can we do for the kingdom? And so excited about that. But really, isn't that the same thing that he's calling these men to? What does he say? To be great, which is a noble cause. Like, I, I think it's good for us to want to be great. He's saying it's to serve. But listen, he takes it even a step further. Those who will be first must be a slave of all. You see, slaves were inferior, inferior to servants. A, 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 a slave was owned, not hired. Does that make sense? A slave was owned, not just the opportunity to serve, but an obligation to serve. You're owned. You're no longer your own. This idea we see all throughout Scripture. If you wonder how you're doing in your walk with Christ, this is a wonderful litmus test. Ask yourself that question. Am I a slave of all? Pretty convicting question, right? Am I a slave? Do I really see myself like that as I'm like, hey, hey my life's not about my needs. It's about others. What other people's needs are once uh, re requirements for life. But that, that's what it revolves around. What a wonderful litmus test. And that's what he calls them to. Not about self-promotion. That works in Satan's kingdom. In God's kingdom, it's about self-denial. We talked about this before. The encouraging thing is, is that God doesn't call us to anything that he's not willing to do himself. Look, look at these last couple verses as we conclude. Verse 45, actually last verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pause there just to unpack that. Jesus modeled this to the extreme. When he talks to us about being a servant, about being a slave, he's like, listen, I'm not just asking you to do something. I've done it. This idea of a ransom, giving your life. Remember, a ransom is a price paid for the release of a slave. He paid the penalty. He's like, man, I covered it. I absorbed. Who was that price paid to? God, I absorbed your wrath, your justice. I took it on myself. I took it. I was the ransom. It's interesting that he says that a ransom for many and not all. Some of you are like, well, I thought he did that for, for all of them. But really, that pointing to the fact that not everybody embraces and accepts that ransom. Some people say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not interested in being served by Jesus. I'm interested in doing it my own way and trying to plow through and do this workspace deal. But he's saying, listen, for many, those who receive that embrace that free gift, if you think about it, what was his life for? Why did he come down? What does he say there? He came to serve, not to, ser not to be served. Let's be crystal clear about this. I think sometimes we get confused about this. God doesn't need us to serve him. God doesn't need us to serve him. He doesn't need our help. We need his. Acts 17.25 says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Let's be clear on this. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's all from him. So this idea that we're acting independently, okay, now I'm going to muster up some strength and, and give back because he's given so much to me. Like, I think, I think we're missing it with that. 
I think that's a misunderstanding of what he's called us to. When he came to serve, it wasn't just a one-time event. He continues to serve us. Unlike children who grow up and become self-sufficient, we're always completely dependent. Does that make sense? We see our kids. We, we raise them with the hope that one day they're going to be more and more independent. One day they'll actually move out. One day they'll, they'll, they'll move out of the basement. I guess that's not relevant in California, but the same idea, you get it. This, this idea that you, you raise them to become independent and self-sufficient, right? Someday they'll actually leave and, and do their own life. But here God's saying like, no, I came to serve you. Like you're still connected, like not to be crass, but the umbilical cord still needs to be there. It still needs to be there. He came to serve and he continues. We continue to need him to serve us. When you stop and think about him stooping down to, to serve us, it's staggering. But we have to trust him to serve us. He doesn't force it. He waits us for us in our humility to be like, all right, I admit it. I can't do it. I need you to serve me. I need you to serve me. I'm desperate for that. Christianity isn't me mustering up my own strength to go and serve him. I was thinking about this in relationship to, uh, to, to cell phones. My, my brain takes uh, me on weird turns. You think about, like a lot of us think of Christianity kind of like the cell phone, where we, we all have one of those, right? Uh, uh, they're getting bigger, and then they'll get smaller, and then it's fun to watch. Uh, but but they, everybody has the idea that Christianity is like, okay, you get plugged in, you build up like you build up its battery life. Then you go out and you enjoy the phone. You do, it does its own thing. And then back at night, you come and plug back in. A lot of people approach Christianity with that same kind of mentality. All right, I go from the church service. I get filled up, the battery charged. I go for my quiet time. And then I go do my own thing until it's time to be recharged. I want to propose that Christianity is a little bit more like a landline than it is a cell phone. Let me propose, remember those with the, with the dial turns? Like, and, and, and remember, anybody ever do this before with those old phones? You're talking, you find yourself kind of walking away, and then you're like, oh, shoot, I'm connected. I'm stuck there. Like, like that same picture is true with our relationship with God. We don't get to go and just be like, all right, I'm just going and doing my own thing. I'm, I'm, he already served me. He took care of that sin thing. Now I just go do my own thing. The truth is, is that we have to stay connected. We're a landline, not a cell phone. What part of Christianity doesn't involve him serving you? Think about that for a second. What part of Christianity doesn't involve him serving you? What part? We're completely dependent on our, our, our life, our breath, every single thing. His service to us is what enables our obedience to him. His service to us is what enables our obedience to him. I like how David Platt, pastor and author, put it. He says, his commands are an invitation for him to serve us. Think about that for a second. His commands are an invitation for him to serve us. Think about it, some of his commands. Okay, he tells you to, to, to love your spouse, he, but that's an opportunity for him to serve. You're like, I can't do it. I, I'm not able to. But he's like, I'm going to give you everything you need. I'm going to give you the patience. I'm going to give you the long-suffering. I'm going to give you the empathy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what you, I'm going to serve you in order to fulfill 
that command. Okay, what about the command to forgive somebody that's wronged you? I can't do it on my own. Like, I don't, I don't like forgiving people. I have lots of people I don't like. Like, like no, he's like, I'm going to give you what you need to forgive them. Think, just play that out in a number. Okay, uh, the command to share my faith. Okay, I know I'm supposed to. I know that it's cruel for me to keep the good news of the message of the gospel to myself. Like, that's, that's pretty selfish. But how do I do it? He'll meet you. He will serve you when you take steps. He's like, if you, let, let me serve you in that too. Let me give you the right words to speak. Let me give you the boldness. Let me give you the courage. There's no part of the Christian life that doesn't involve him serving you. Trust him to serve you in everything. Think about it. Trust him to serve you in everything he calls you to do. Trust him to serve you in everything he calls you to do. He doesn't just say, go do this. Good luck with that. He's saying, go do this, and then when we do it, we can point back to him and say, like, hey, he's the source. He's the source. Like, look at my landline. It's connected to the wall. Like, this wouldn't work without without that. And so as we're serving, as we're called, the beautiful truth is God created us with a need to be served. We're not independent, self-sufficient operating machines. We need to be served, and that service is ongoing. And we give God the glory as we point out the source of our service. When we're like, all right, I'm being a, I'm being a slave. I'm being a servant. Well, guess what? Guess who's enabling you? It's because he served us first. It's an awesome truth. It's an awesome reality. What other kingdom do we see that is like that? Where do you see a political leader that's like, you know what, I'm just, just strictly there to serve. No interest in them. Like, ah, I don't really see that. I mean, maybe there's some public servants out there like that. I'm still looking for. But, uh, but, but really, this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is introducing, he's saying, listen, I showed up to serve you. I served up. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't serve in response. Don't hear me saying that. He's saying, but it has to start with him ongoing serving us. That's how it works in this upside-down kingdom. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for that reality, because when I hear challenges and callings to serve and to be a slave and a servant, I come to the conclusion that I can't do that. I'm not good at it. It's not natural. It doesn't, it doesn't come out of me and my flesh and my desires to climb and rise up, just like, just like James and John did. God, we know that we need you to serve us in these areas if we're going to be able to be fruitful in that. If we're going to be able to do it, we have to stay connected to the wall. Got to be the landline. I thank you for this reminder. Thank you for your patience with, with these disciples. Thank you for your patience with us as we try to work through that, God. I just pray for each of us that this would be even a step towards surrender, that we just let go and we surrender to him. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, isn't that good news that we have a God that showed up to serve us and we're so desperately in need of being served? Thankful to him for that reality. Pray you have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless you.